Hi, my name is Pamela Coons, Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Oncology at Yale School of Medicine and Yale Cancer Center. I'm excited to announce ASCO's new open access journal, JCO Oncology Advances. As the inaugural editor-in-chief, I hope to support JCO Oncology Advances to become the premier platform to bridge the gap between accessible scientific research and clinical care. Stay tuned for more information, including new article types, at ascopubs.org forward slash JCO Oncology Advances. We look forward to seeing your submissions in spring of 2024. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. This is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an ASCO endorsement. Welcome to JCO's Cancer Stories, The Art of Oncology, brought to you by the ASCO Podcast Network, a collection of nine programs covering a range of educational and scientific content and offering enriching insight into the world of cancer care. You can find all of the shows, including this one, at podcast.asco.org. Dr. Norton has stock and other ownership interest in Samus Therapeutics, Codigenics Inc., Martel Diagnostic, and MetAdoptive Health Inc. He has received honoraria from Context Therapeutics, Prime Oncology, the Sarah Lawrence Lecture, Context Advisory Board, Oncology Pioneer Science Lecture Series, Sermon X Pharmaceuticals, the Cold Spring Harbor Advisory Board, Codigenics, Agenis, and the Cold Spring Harbor External Advisory Board. He has served as a consultant or provided advice to Context Therapeutics, Prime Oncology, Context Advisory Board, Oncology Pioneer Science Lecture, Martel Diagnostics, Sermonix, Codigenics, Agenis, Metadaptive Health, and the Cold Springs Harbor Laboratories. He has received expense reimbursement for travel and accommodations from the Oncology Pioneer Science Lecture Series, the BCRP Programmatic Review Meeting, the Breast Cancer Research Foundation, the American Association of Cancer Research, and Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. Today, my guest on the podcast is Dr. Larry Norton. Dr. Norton's been instrumental in so many facets of oncology, it's hard to go through, but particularly in breast cancer, and especially related to applying mathematical models of cancer kinetics that he developed with Richard Simon at the National Cancer Institute, and and applying them really to dose density strategies for chemotherapy and breast cancer, which we'll discuss. Dr. Norton was raised in suburban New York. He received his undergraduate degree at Rochester University, his medical degree at the Columbia University College of Physicians and Scientists, and then he did his residency at Einstein Associated Hospitals in the Bronx. He then went on to complete a medical oncology fellowship at the National Cancer Institute from 1974 to 1976 and stayed there an extra year. And then he returned to New York and joined the faculty at Mount Sinai in 1977, where he stayed for about a decade. He then moved to Memorial Sun Kettering, where I think most of us think he 
was born and raised and lived his whole life. Uh, he's held many positions there, and particularly he was responsible for really building the breast medical oncology service and starting the Evelyn Lauder Breast Center. He now sits in the Norman S. Seraphim. Did I pronounce that correctly, Dr. Norman, I think? Yes, you did, indeed. Chair in clinical oncology. He's authored over 450 peer-reviewed papers. He's won too many awards for me to list, as have most of my guests on this program. But in particular, he's won the triple crown, in my opinion, and that's the Karnowski, the McGuire, and the Bonadonna Awards. At least those of us in breast cancer would strive to win all three of those. And importantly to this series, he served as president of ASCO from 2001 to 2002, has served many roles in ASCO and has had a major footprint in where ASCO is today. Dr. Norton, welcome to our program. Great pleasure to be here. Thank you, Dan. So we'll start with some of the um, origin stories. Uh, you know, I know you weren't bit by a radioactive spider and being, got spider <laughs> powers, but, uh, you know, I've, I've known you for a long time and I know you're really your first love was music and that you started out to be a professional musician. Can you kind of give us some background? What were your instruments? Uh, I know you went to Rochester specifically to be in music. Uh, and feel more than free to do some name dropping, because I think some of the people you know in music are people we'd all recognize. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't know whether that would, be, that would be totally right. I've known a lot of people in music. Yeah, my first love was music. Grew up in, in Long Island, was able to commute in with one bus and one subway to Greenwich Village in the 60s which was uh, really the hotbed of, of much of what was going on uh, in, in music to this day. I didn't even realize it was a golden age. I remember all the giants, Bob Dylan, when he was a very young kid in town, the small coffee houses. But it was also in close proximity where a lot of the jazz scene was happening. And, uh, and just to you know, take the A train would be very easy to get up in, into Harlem where there's a lot of jazz things going on. Like a lot of kids growing up on Long Island, you know, I had some musical education, you know, started off with the clarinet, went quickly into, into saxophone in terms of, in terms of music, but uh, played a whole variety of instruments uh, like everybody else. I played guitar, I played percussion, I played bongos behind beat poets, and uh, was very uh, excited to be really part of that scene. I, th I think one of the, the major turning points for me actually was the Vietnam War. Because like a, a lot of people of my generation, it did not seem to be a reasonable war. And even McNamara wrote a book later saying, yep, sorry, it was a mistake. We were looking for things that could interest us and also help us serve our country in ways other than sacrificing our lives in Vietnam. That's kind of how medicine got into my life. It seemed to be the right, the right compromise. Fortunately, uh, starting off in Rochester, um, which had the Eastern School of Music, uh, which was a great influence on me um, and uh, and a fantastic school and uh, has evolved continuously to be even a better school now. It's a very active jazz program now, which didn't exist at that time. We had to do jazz on the sly, which was very easy to do because there were a lot of jazz clubs in Rochester at that time. And it was really very easy to to play jazz all night and then to play uh, classical music all day. And it, 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 that, that was totally a, totally a great experience. We were young. We didn't have to sleep at all. But, you know, I, I hankered to get back into New York. When the opportunity arose to go to medical school, I was fortunately chosen to go to Columbia, uh, where I actually was able to play music and at the same time go, go to medical school. But after a while, as all of us in medicine know, it becomes all-consuming. And so the medicine part of it just sort of slipped maintained a lot of my friends from the old days up until the present day. Um, had very little performing. I've done a couple of benefits. You know, I'll do the one name drop with Elton John because he's been so terrific at raising money for, for breast cancer research through the Breast Cancer Research Foundation. 
had the great honor of being able to play with him how, twice how at did, those events. How did you meet Elton John? I mean, it's mutual, not like you walk down the street and say, oh, hi, I'm Dan no, Well, mu- you know, mutual friends, mutual friends in the arts, basically. One of our, our closest friends, close friend of his, close friend of mine, somebody named Ingrid Sishi, was a fantastic writer and editor, very involved with Andy Warhol in the beginning, and then uh, continued a career in, in, in art criticism and art writing, and she was a friend of everybody and a close friend of Elton's and a close friend of mine. And so I think she made the original, original introduction, and he's really been terrific. But the music is, you know, is, is put to the side, although I do play every day. I still keep that as a kind of a very important part of my, my, my Zen escape from other stresses of life, although music itself has its own stresses. The good thing about jazz is it's improvisation. So, you know, you, you, it's, it's an immediate feeling. You know, no such thing as a wrong note. Uh, you know, you, you hit a wrong note and you play, you play around it and it becomes a right note. And so music is a, still a very important part of my life. It's terrific. I uh, actually I interviewed Heim Muss a few weeks ago, and uh, he and some others have sort of introduced me to tying flies for fly fishing, and it's sort of the same thing. I can take 15 minutes and tie a fly. I'm not sure it looks like anything a fish will like, but it's not medicine for a while, and that's good. Yeah, but medicine. You know, the other thing I I want to get back to this for a second because I mean, it's not it's not a separate thing. I mean, music, especially my early music education, you know, just taught me a lot. That's really helped me in my career in medicine. I think it's it's I think it's very important for people to know the talent for music is the talent to practice. Essentially, anybody who can speak can can uh, has has enough control of tones that they can actually, you know, do something with music. I'm I'm not sure how much is really inborn ability. I'm not sure there is such a thing as, as talent in that regard. But but that some people can practice for long hours successfully, and some people can't. And and I think that that's something that may be inborn. I don't know. I'll leave that to the to the developmental psychologist. But that is a very important trait, obviously, in medicine. You have to spend a long time studying. You have to learn a lot. You have to concentrate a lot. You have to be able to concentrate on individual patients when you're taking care of them. And that's been very important. But, but it's also empathy. Music teaches you to feel what other people are feeling. You're not going to be a good musician unless you know how you're affecting your audience in a profound way. And, and you can sense when you're losing your audience and you can change the direction you're going in. And when you hit something right, you can play it. And that... That, that ability to feel what other people are feeling, I think, is really essential to being a good clinician. And, and, and music, music teaches you that. I think arts in general teach you that. Actually, um, I hadn't thought about it. Do you think that your music and your mathematic leanings are tied together, too? There is a tendency for mathematicians to be musicians, um, uh, not, not true quite vice versa, although, although they are good musicians really are mathematicians if they don't know it. A lot of people think math is, is the written equation, and it's not. It's a certain, it's a certain approach toward nature, thinking in, in spatial ways for me, uh, thinking of shapes and the way shapes form, the way shapes move over time and space. Then you learn the tools for being able to write it down, which is the, the actual mathematical notation. Yeah. And the same thing with music. I mean, music isn't, isn't the notes on the page. I mean, that's a very poor reflection of, of what the sounds you're making. It's the sounds. It's the sounds, and, and they go up and they down. They're spatial, and they go forward in time, and so they're temporal. And they have meaning. Uh, you know, it's not just, not just random sounds. They have meaning. They connect to each other, and they tell a story, as we, as we say in the jazz world. Um, and, and the notes are a poor reflection of that. Some of the best musicians I know can't read music. And, and as a matter of fact, it used to be um, said that if you want to be a good jazz musician, should, you shouldn't learn to read. Because if you learn to read, you'll cheat. And you should learn to be able to play by ear. Um, and that's what's going to make you a better musician. So, so I, think, I think math and, and music are very closely aligned. 
you have a, a problem to solve and you think about it in, in novel ways that are, are not verbal. And the nonverbal way of thinking in music and in math are very similar, I think. So let me segue on to how you change paths. I, I, I know that it was, I've heard you talk about the discussion with Dr. Ron Bloom, who I think has remained a good friend of yours, and then an association with Dr. Riegelson at Roswell Park. Can you tell us about that? Well, Ron got me into, I mean, Ron, great, great oncologist, um, retired now, and his wife, Diane, also very, very important in the cancer world um, through her, her leadership of organizations. They both went to the University of Rochester, the same time I did. I was actually perplexed uh, at the end of one semester. So both Ron and Diane were at the University of Rochester, the same was, and I was perplexed at the end of one semester because I had several opportunities to do things in the summer coming forward, one of which was, was very music-oriented, and it was a very exciting possibility. But I was, at that time, considering you know a change in direction very strongly. Math was one of the things that was drawing me. The question, should I become a professional statistician? That was, that was the course that was turning me on mostly at that time. I thought physics was an incredible art form, and it was very intrigued to that. But I also had music that was drawing me, and also you know the question of you know, what could keep me helping people and helping my nation and keep me from necessarily bearing arms in Vietnam was a big concern. And I, and I met Ron on the, on, the, on the stairs of the Rush Rees Library at the University of Rochester, famous library that, by the way, has a famous ghost associated with it. It's a whole different story. <laughs> he said that he had this unbelievably wonderful experience the previous summer by working at Roswell Park Memorial Institute in Buffalo, the New York State Cancer Research Institute, particularly under a guy named, named William Regelson, who was just totally inspirational to him. And that was one of his major motivations to spend his career in cancer medicine, which I didn't even know. It. I had another connection to, to Bill Regelson is that my father and his father actually knew each other because they were in um, businesses that touched. Uh, his, his father ran a Cascos resort, and my father was a professional writer and travel editor at the New York Post. And so that there was that connection, so that um, when I relayed the story to my parents, they said, oh, you know, we know this, we know Regelson. So, well, one thing led to another, and on a, on a cold and rainy night, I took a bus into, into, into Buffalo, New York, and I met Bill Regelson in the laboratory at Roswell Park Institute. It was already late at night, and it was a freezing rain, kind of, kind of miserable night. And he asked me a lot of very tough questions and was not very pleasant toward me. But at the end of the interview, he says, I like the way you think, and I'd like to offer you an opportunity to work you know, with me this summer. And I jumped at that opportunity, and it was really, truly the turning point in my life in many ways, because I eventually, many years later, ended up marrying Bill Regelson's daughter, um, uh, my, my current I wife and other of my children. Yeah, Rachel, the love of my life. It was an extraordinary experience because I really got very close to the family, and she was in New York at Columbia, the same at Barnard, at the same time that I was in medical school, and so that's how it all came, came about. But anyway, Bill was really an inspirational character for many people of, of, of my generation who were in contact with him because he was just filled with enthusiasm and energy and optimism. Remember, the early days of oncology were very special. And by the way, if you want to catch a glimpse of that, uh, Vince DeVita's book, The Death of Cancer, I'm giving it a big plug, fantastic book that, that captures the whole history of his life in cancer, but the early days is, is very important for people to recognize what it was like in those, in those early days. It was just an enormous challenge just to get people to pay attention the possibility that drugs could actually be useful in the treatment of cancer. And it was, it, was, it, was, it was often ridiculed. I can tell you a little story later about my early experiences when I came to New York in that regard. So did you 
know you were going to go be an oncologist when you went to med school? Or I'll, that, I'll, I'll tell you, the, I'll tell you two of the turning points in that in that regard that I think <laughs> is interesting. One is at the very beginning of that summer, Bill Regelson brought me. In those days, the labs were right next to the clinic the inpatient service. And he brought me right from the lab a few steps and to see a patient who was admitted to the hospital with a pelvic tumor, I don't know what type, didn't register in my mind at that time, but a pelvic tumor that had grown very large and it actually had eroded out into the skin and was large and infected and bleeding and just awful. And the patient was in terrible pain. And he said, we're going to treat this patient with a new drug that I think is going to help her. And it's called methotrexate. And uh, he's treated her with methotrexate, and I saw the I saw the yellow medicine go into her arms, you know. And over the next few weeks uh, during that summer, I saw this tumor shrink down. I saw the skin heal over. I saw the pain go away. Um, and it was, you know, I'm I'm seeing this this monster eating eating this woman from the inside out, and I'm seeing just this yellow chemical going in there, and the monster being defeated. It was like it was like magic. It was something. It was something just beyond conception that that actually you could take something that that awful and that terrible and actually give it medicine and actually make it go away. And I said, uh, you know, this this is a world I can't turn my back on. This is a world I have to be in. This is just a, a magical, wonderful world where where you can actually you know, heal things that couldn't be healed by other ways. I mean, totally beyond surgery, totally beyond radiation, and here's some medicine going in. So that kind of hooked me. But but the very end of the summer, and toward the very end of my time there, another thing happened, which um, would be a good segue, <laughs> but also very important, is the real person running Medicine A at Russell Park at the time was this person named Jim Holland. And Jim Holland was not there all summer because he was riding a horse and the horse and he had his daughter one of his daughters on the horse and uh, and the horse was acting very very jittery and he was a little afraid of what the horse would do so he went close to a fence where he can actually unload the daughter so she can grab onto the fence and and the horse did bolt and crushed his hip against the fence and so he was out with with a fractured hip or pelvis uh, the entire summer but he was well enough toward the end of the summer to come in and speak to the summer students and, uh, and he came in and he sat in a chair in the middle of the room and all the summer students who sort of gathered around him. If I thought Bill Regal said energy, to see this tornado of, of a personality in, <laughs> in the room, you know, with his loud, booming voice and his probing questions, his clear intelligence and enthusiasm for his field and dedication to it was just inspirational. And so it was kind of a crescendo of a summer for me. And that was it. The experience of Bill Regelson, the experience of Jim Holland, I knew that I was stuck. And, and even though other, other things were attracting my attention, nothing was going to capture my life as much as the medical oncology. You went on then to work with him for 10 years at Mount Sinai. Right. In addition to what you've said, his obnoxious ties also always stood out for <laughs> the rest of us. But those 10 years must have been unbelievable because the guy never quit thinking, at least in my experience with him. And there's so much to say about Jim Holland. I had the honor to speak his funeral, the sadness to speak at his funeral, but also the honor to speak at his funeral related some of the stories. But there's so much to talk about him that it's actually worth a whole, a whole book, even an opera, what a bigger than life personality he was. But he captured something that I think was very important and some of the early pioneers uh, that we were talking about, you know, before it really sort of captured, which is, I mean, these were real pioneers. I'll just give you a little side story. I mean, I, I came into Grand Rounds once uh, when I was working with him late, as I usually am to pretty much everything. But but nevertheless, I came in a few minutes late and everybody was gathered around. And I remember there was a 
thoracic uh, specialist, a pulmonologist who was actually conducting grand rounds. And as I walked in the door, he says, how come you're late, Larry? Were you out there saving lives? <laughs> and everybody roared into uproarious laughter because medical oncology was the last step before, you know, the cemetery, you know, hopeless situations would all come to us and then we would give drugs and not help people, you know, you know, whatsoever. And I, of course, I felt this deep humiliation. I was young, young doctor at the time, and all these very senior people, great luminaries were, were, were arrayed around. But that was kind of the attitude of a lot of people in medicine at that time, is that hopeless situations sent it to them, they'll sort of take care of it, they'll hold hands, whatever. And to see where we are today, and, and how many cases we've cured, and how many patients we've cured, and how well we manage things, certainly we don't cure enough, and you and I and our whole community is working hard on that, but we do cure a whole lot of people, and we do help their lives, and we do keep them functioning for a long period of time with the medicines. So the people that went into the field at that time and actually established the field of, of, of oncology, medical oncology at that time, you know, were really had to be have a real pioneering spirit. And so Tom Fry obviously pops to mind in that regard. Many others. Uh, I could live a, well, a long say, list I, of many had, others. I had the great privilege of training with Tom Fry and the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Fryrick, who sadly passed away a few weeks ago. I did not get to interview Dr. Holland, but because of his friendship with Dr. Fry, Dr. Holland sort of adopted me as well, even though I was never working with him directly. And the three of those guys, I think our, our listeners need to understand, they were really cowboys. And they did things that we would now just, I think, repel, just say, well, you, you can't do that sort of thing. But they did it because they had to. As you said, there was nothing else to do. It took a special personality. Totally, every, everything you're saying is, 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 is I agree with. But, but also, that's why we are where we are today, is because they took chances, because they had a vision, and they, they attacked that vision very, very aggressively. I'll do one more name drop in music. There's, you know, one of my, and still friend, is um, uh, Quincy Jones. And Quincy Jones, Quincy Jones, you know, had this, um, you know, wonderful phrase in terms of jazz improvisation that was really kind of very important to me. Sometimes, Larry, you have to jump without a parachute. <laughs> um, and um, how do you get into an improvisation? You just start, and then it has a life of its own, you know, and, and, and the better you get, the more experience you get, the better you start it, and, and, the, and the better you're going to develop it, but, but you just got to start. Hit, hit the first note. doesn't matter what it is, and that kind of spirit of jumping in into it was really very important, and I think, I think that, that's something I really miss from modern oncology, you know, if we're going to talk about where we are now compared to where we are then. A lot of things have changed that are very positive. Obviously, the amount of science that we have to, to draw from now is just, just astronomically greater than what we had in the early days when we were talking about very primitive things. The whole Norton Simon thing was all about attacking cell division, you know, and the best way of attacking cell division. I mean, you know, uh, we're, we're so far beyond that in, in so many ways. That's one of the bigger changes. Our access to information. I mean, you know, I had a question. I have to go to the library and go to card catalogs and pull books off the shelf and open them up and spend spend hours and spend days finding out one piece of information that now I can find out in about 15 seconds if my fingers are slow on the keyboard, 15 seconds, you know. And so that's it. But one of the, one of the major things is that it was all about concepts then. Uh, it, was, it was all about principles. The principle that, that antimitotics could actually, you know, make tumors shrink and could be beneficial to the patient. That, that's a principle. Combination chemotherapy is a principle. Uh, dose-dense sequential therapy, if you take it into, into, into you know, further development of my area, is a principle. 
And the overarching concepts, um, patient centrality of it also, is that the, the early clinical trials were very small trials because each and every patient was a valuable piece of information. They were almost collections of anecdotes. And obviously, we've evolved way past that in very positive ways. But what you learned from the individual patient was extremely important to that, that generation of, uh, of pioneers rather than, rather than, than large numbers. And I think we moved away from that. Actually, I'm going to interrupt you because I think almost everybody I've interviewed has stories like you started out with. I saw a patient who I couldn't believe responded to X or Y, and I have the same stories. And I'm hoping our young folks still believe that's as important as filling out the meaningful use things on their documentation. (laughs) I told my own son, I want him to be a doctor and not a documenter. Uh, You need to document, but you need to be a doctor. Can I segue into that? that, You know, we ought to spend a whole podcast on that topic. Yeah, no, I don't do that. Because the thing Uh, is, well, because I think that the thing is, when you're taking care of a patient and you're thinking, obviously, we're always thinking what's best for the patient, all of us. And, but you're also thinking of, you know, gathering information in a, in a verbal way about the patient so you can talk about that patient to your colleagues or, or write it as case reports, a series of case reports. It's a different mindset than when you're thinking about how am I going to fill out my, you know, the electronic health record. And I think the, the mindset differences, and I frequently say to the, the, the younger people that, that I teach or that I'm in contact with, is that they grew up in a digital world and I grew up in an analog world. And, and the way you think in an analog world is very different than the way you think in a digital world. Maybe it's for the better. I mean, only history will tell. But I just miss that kind of analog thinking. Much of what we have today is because of it. Let me take you into to your role in, in modeling and especially with the so-called Norton Simon hypothesis. How did you hook up with Richard Simon and what did he teach you? Because I find him to be a fascinating oh, person. Fascinating person. And obviously one of the really important people in, in, uh, in my professional career. The math was in there because, you know, you know, along with, I mean, I studied math. Um, I studied math in college and I was. Actually, I, I, just describe it just for a minute. Describe what it is for our listeners. Oh, the, the Norton Simon hypothesis and they yeah. are, are. Oh, yeah. Well, briefly, um, briefly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, it's very simple is that way before my time, Skipper Shabo and colleagues at Southern Research Institute, you know, had described the way experimental tumors in the laboratory grew, which was exponential. And they made the observation called the log kill hypothesis, which is the log kill rule, which is a given dose of a given drug, kills a percentage of the cells that are present rather than an absolute number of cells, which is actually counterintuitive. It shouldn't be that way if you think about it in in terms of biochemistry, but it is that way. And we were all taught the Skipper-Shabel model and log kill hypothesis. We were all taught that. And I was uh, in the clinic taking care of a patient with Hodgkin's disease, nodular sclerosis and Hodgkin's disease. This patient had mediastinal involvement with Hodgkin's disease. Remember, I, I was working with Vince DeVita, um, great influence of my life, Bruce Chabner, you know, Bob Young, many people who are, you know, George Canellas, who you know very well, great luminaries, you know, doing lymphoma therapy as a clinical associate at the National Cancer Institute. What happened to this patient is that he had the Hodgkin's disease, got mock chemotherapy, roared into complete remission. Basically, two cycles of MOP was in complete remission. I've been involved in oncology since the early days of MOP to show you how long I've been involved in oncology. And I uh, got four more cycles because we get six cycles, you know, no matter what, or two cycles beyond complete remission in that setting. And it was about a year, and the patient came back with mediastinal lymphadenopathy, biopsy showed that it was exactly the same lymphoma. 
put him back on MOP chemotherapy, and he responded again and went back into a remission. I don't recall whether it was complete remission or partial remission, but and I said, this is really fascinating because the math was already in my my head at the time. Because I thought I want to graph it out and, and show how well it fit the log hill hypothesis. And it didn't fit at all. And it just didn't make any kind of sense. From a mathematical point of view, you couldn't make the equations fit. And, and about that same time, I became aware that others were describing that tumors were not really growing exponentially, uh, solid tumors were not growing exponentially as, as Skipper had shown in his laboratory models, so in leukemia and in leukemia L1210, but rather by a very strange kind of curve called the Gompers curve, which was, you know, d- developed in 1825 by Benjamin Gompers to fit actuarial data, actually, not anything in, in, in terms of biology. And, and that's an S shaped curve. So it looks sort of exponential at the beginning and then it bends over and eventually seems to try to reach a, a plateau size. And so I went back and I applied the Skipper-Shable model mathematically to the Gompers curve and I realized that for this individual patient, it would make a whole lot of sense if the tumor, when it was growing quickly, regressed more than when it was growing slowly at a very large size. In other words, that, that the hypothesis is that the rate at which it would shrink is proportional to its rate of growth. And since in a gum protein curve, the rate of growth is always changing, the rate of shrinkage changes as a function of time as the tumor is shrinking down. And that was the, the germ of the idea. And then the question is how to test it. Under contract, uh, Arthur Bogdan uh, in Massachusetts did some animal modeling for us. And we published my, my first paper, actually, that showed tumors were growing in a gum protein fashion. And in fact, a subsequent paper showed that they regressed also in a Gumpertzian fashion, which is what the Norman Stein hypothesis. Almost immediately thereafter, thought of a couple of implications in terms of cancer therapeutics. And I want to get back to that. Remind me to get back to that, um, you know, later on, because this is around 1977 um, uh, or so that, that all of this was, was, was really becoming clear. So it was actually one patient that made, made me think of it. I mean, frankly, it was one patient's experience that made me think of it. And, and that's what you were saying before, Dan, is the, the importance of learning from each, each individual patient. And actually, it's gone on to be tested in many, many trials, but probably the most definitive was run by Mark Citron and CLGB under your yeah. guidance. And I just want to say a few words because Mark passed away just a few weeks ago. He was really instrumental in ASCO and very very generous to the foundation. We'll miss him greatly. But that trial, 9741, demonstrated that dose density was superior to giving things in big doses for long, longer periods of time. Yeah, Let me yeah. ask you about your I just want to second secondary what you're saying about yeah. Mark. I mean, just an incredible human being, an incredible person, um, an incredible clinical scientist. And he was actually the first community clinician to to chair a major national trial from a cooperative group, which was just an intentional decision. I believe you were involved in that decision, actually, Dan. Uh, I must certainly. Mark and I sort of started in a group at the same time, and we grew very close. I, I miss him. Let me ask you to look into your crystal ball for a minute, and that is with precision medicine and targeted therapy. Does the Norton-Simon hypothesis still apply to that? Do you think chemotherapy? Oh, oh yes. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, I'm not, it, 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 now we're getting into sophisticated science topics here, but the thing is that I, I'm not, to, the, to this day, I'm not sure how chemotherapy works. I, I don't think that all of chemotherapy effect is just killing dividing cells. First of all, it's mathematically impossible. Does chemotherapy, does cytotoxotherapy affect the relationship to cancer to its microenvironment? Does it affect its relationship to the immune system? These are all things that are under active investigation and active study at the present time. 
there's more to what we do every day in terms of giving chemotherapy than just killing dividing dividing cells. Chemotherapy can be very precise. I mean, methotrexate and dihydrofolate reductase we talked about before is very, very precise therapy and hormone therapy, tamoxifen and the estrogen receptor. So we've been talking about precision medicine for a long time. It's just that our level of sophistication in terms of likely targets has changed, but but still it works. It's kind of a law of um, that, that fast things, things that grow faster regress more quickly than things growing more slowly, how you perturb them. And I think that there are important lessons there that that we still have to learn about cancer biology. And that got me into some very exciting areas with Jean Massaguet and colleagues into self-seeding theory for cancer, for example, and that story is evolving and more data, data is becoming available there and, and much more sophisticated mathematics than we apply to those days that, 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 that I, hope, I hope I will have time to work on for the next few years to be able to actually establish those, those principles. But I still think that, that we're doing something wrong um, if you're talking about crystal ball, which is that, um, and, and it relates to what I just said before, we're still self-hypnotized into thinking that cancer is a disease of cell division. The vast bulk of our targeted therapeutics are, are oriented toward molecules that are, re- are related to mitosis. You'll hear a talk that'll be a very specific talk about molecular pathways, uh, starting with genomics and, 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 and intracellular signaling. At the end of the slide, it says, you know, in, invasion, metastasis, and, and, and growth. It's a nice little package, and sort of that's the answer. Well, that's, I mean, that, that's, you know, um, you know a, a big cloudy area. I mean, those are different things. Those are separate things. Those are, all have their separate biology, but they're all related. It is totally true. And how are they related and why are they related is one of the very important topics that we have to wrestle with because that's what we really have to perturb. And I think that the, the you know, again, crystal ball sort of guessing, or at least where I'm putting my energies now is, we have all these incredible tools for developing medicinals uh, that can attack molecules. Are we attacking the right molecules by focusing on the cell division? Should we be looking more toward perturbing uh, tumor microenvironment relationships? Should we look at more sophisticated ways of, of using the immune system as one element in the tumor microenvironment, one of many elements in the tumor microenvironment to accomplish uh, the goals that we have to accomplish? And are we actually looking at the right things in terms of molecular analysis of cancer by looking at pathways that are concerned with cell division primarily and secondarily with other things or should be looking at molecular networks and molecular pathways in a more sophisticated fashion. Just like the early days of oncology, we have to be willing to take intellectual chances. And that's something I'm seeing much less of now than, than I did if you go back half a century. We can go on with this one for a long time, too, and we probably will the next time we get to sit and have a drink together when the pandemic goes away. I think it relates to dormancy, and I don't think we understand dormancy or how it is broken and how to treat it. I have two things, and we're running out of time. One of those is you probably, in my opinion, have been the king of understanding the importance of philanthropy in our field especially in relationship to what I see directly, which was your relationship with Evelyn Lauder and and her husband, Leonard, of course, and the Breast Cancer Research Foundation. But I'd just like you to emphasize to the folks coming in the field how important that philanthropy is. I think some of them believe it's dirty to get involved with that and ask people to give money. And you and other people, I think, have taught a lot of us that these folks want to help us, and it's important to address that in a dignified way. We're all in this together. I mean, I think that's the important thing to recognize as a physician or as a scientist. I said in a paper once that just as all of us are either actual or potential healers, all of us are actual or potential patients, 
cancer is a very important problem that needs to be solved and people have to solve it every way they can. You know, with our intellectual ability, our hard work in the clinic, our hard work in the laboratory, and people who are working hard in other fields who accumulate some element of wealth, um, or, or even people that just in normal life contribute small amounts. A lot of people contribute small amounts, adds up to a lot of money also. And they're all part of the same process. I mean, the importance of philanthropy is that, um, and it goes back to what Evelyn said, which I quote all the time. She was very instrumental in the building of our, our first breast center at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and then our second breast center, which is a freestanding building at Memorial Sloan Kettering. She and Leonard involved in every way, and not just in terms of philanthropy, but, but actually thinking through the problems and helping solve them and design in, in every, every way. When we built the first building that we had, um, uh, we actually raised a little bit more money than we needed for the actual physical structure. So the question is what to do with it. And obviously, you know, a research fund at Memorial was established. But then in terms of where else to go with it, she invited me over to her place in, in, in New York, you know, overlooking Central Park. And we sat in the kitchen, we drank tea. And I said, what I perceive, and with my colleagues, I'm not the only one, obviously, is perceiving is an explosion of science, basic science um, in understanding cancer, and an incredible collection of clinical investigators that can do clinical trials and do large clinical trials as well as pilot clinical trials in their own institutions. But I didn't see the connections really being very tight because we were in different worlds speaking somewhat different languages and we had to tighten those connections somehow and do something that translated scientific advances in the laboratory into clinical benefit and also allowed the, the scientists to understand what the clinical problems were and how to have the approach and how we're going to sort of do this. She said, you know, I've worked around creative people all my life, you know, in my professional life. And I know you've got to identify the right people, first of all. So that's a little bit of a talent. But that the main thing is that when you identify them, you've got to give them freedom to use their imagination and the security to know that if they do something good and it doesn't work out, that they're not going to lose their job. Freedom and security is the secret of making progress in the field. And I said, that's what we need. We need a foundation that can give the right people the, the freedom to use their imagination and the security to know that as long as they're doing work, good work, they're not going to lose their funding in a more traditional kind of grant mechanism. And that's really where it started. So the whole thing is all based on that, um, is to, to get the right people and to give them freedom and security. And, and another part of it I just want to mention is networking, to give people... So let the, me focus this. Okay. Breast Cancer Research Foundation... How many people are you supporting and how much money did you give this year? Just oh, to give uh, about, well, I mean, it's about, it's, it, 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 about 200 or so or more than that, uh, you know, investigators. It's, it's international at the present time. Um, uh, this year has been a tough year and the next few years probably because of COVID, um, because of the pandemic, um, you know, it's been a tough year. But in general, we've probably given away about a billion dollars. But it's not given away. It's, it's actually an investment, investment in the future. Yes, um, and I agree. And it's all about it's all about it's all about bringing people together. Um, you know, the, new investigators come in and um, and they're used to sort of a gladiatorial combat when it comes to grant grant acquisition is that they have to fight against other people to beat them out. And what we reward is people working together and sharing ideas. And phenomenal things have occurred in that direction. Um, phenomenal yeah, huge programs and metastasis and molecular biology, translational breast cancer research consortium, which um, uh, you know has been a fantastic thing that we've helped support. So um, it's, it's, it's really been a joy. It's been great. Final one minute. The other thing you've done as well or better than most is mentoring. And I personally want to thank you for helping me in my career, but probably your greatest success is mentoring Cliff Huddis, who's now the <laughs> CEO of ASCO and uh, is responsible for ASCO continuing to be probably the world's greatest oncology professional society. Actually, not probably, in my opinion, for sure. So for that, I thank you. 
we've run out of time, unfortunately. I think you and I could go on for another hour or so of this stuff, which is what's fun about my getting to do this. But uh, I want to thank you for all you've done for the field, for all you've done for so many of us in the field, and most importantly, for the patients who have benefited from what you've done. It's pretty remarkable. This has been so much fun for me to get to interview so many of the pioneers, but you certainly rank up there at the tops. So thank you very much for your time and uh, look forward to talking to you later. Thank you so much for the kind words and for inviting me to do this with you, Pam. Thank you. Until next time, thank you for listening to this JCO's Cancer Stories, the Art of Oncology podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today, don't forget to give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. While you're there, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. JCO's Cancer Stories, the Art of Oncology podcast is just one of ASCO's many podcasts. You can find all the shows at podcast.asco.org.